0: Spent a little bit of time reviewing last week and one of the questions I have is in the same kind of format as the short answer questions in the exam so I'll give you a little bit of practice with that. Then I want to actually go through one example of the many case studies that I used in Part B of the exam and explain to you what I call the fail-proof or foolproof proof method of actually uh, tackling those many case studies in the exam. I guarantee you, you will not fail if you follow this method. Seriously. No one ever does. Because most people are smart enough to pass economics, they just don't know how to write about economics. So I'm going to pass on to you. Honestly, the best way ever of doing exam questions, as long as the lecturer will allow you to do it this way, but I will. All right? Not every lecturer will allow you to do it this way, but I will. You should always ask your lecturer how they expect you to tackle their exam questions. Anyway, let's get underway. Whoops, I'll turn this on. Copyright notice, you know all about that. Quick multiple choice test. One question in this test, that's the best ever. Bitcoin, an example of cash, parallel currency, cryptocurrency or commodity money. Which one? Cash. And up, all those who take cash. All dead, all wrong. Pardon? Dead. Yes! What were you going to say, Daniel? Yeah! Okay, okay, okay. Right on. Why isn't it cash? Yeah! See? This is cash, All right. Coin and currency. Oh, I've got a $50 on that today. Look, 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 that's because I've been too busy to go to the shops and spend it. That's cash. It's currency, which is notes, or coin. So, Bitcoin doesn't come like this. You can't get physical Bitcoins. Even though if you go on the internet, you'll see um, illustrations of, of coins with the B sign in them, you can't actually get Bitcoin. So, it's not cash. Does anyone know what a parallel currency is? That doesn't surprise me because we didn't talk about it last week. But there are parallel currencies. There's one really neat one. It's called um, the Brixton pound. Now, has anyone heard of Brixton? You have, Michelle, Daniel. Where's Brixton? Yeah, it's in the UK. It's in London. Well, it's a fairly poor area in London. Um, a lot of um, um, black people live there, alright? So it's, it's one of those sort of lower socioeconomic areas. Well, they decided to create their own currency called Brixton Pounds. Now, you can go to a credit union office there and you can exchange your British Pounds for Brixton Pounds. And uh, I was looking at the internet this morning, about 40% of businesses in Brixton will actually accept Brixton Pounds as currency, so you can actually use Brixton Pounds as a medium of exchange within Brixton. And the idea is it will bring community together and it enables businesses to um, generate, as it were, local local customers. It's just a way of bringing the community together and, and in a sense, making that community a little bit more self-sufficient within it. Now, the thing about a parallel currency is that it is backed by something else of value and in the case of the Brixton Pound, at the credit union where you can go to exchange your British Pounds for Brixton Pounds, for every one Brixton Pound, they hold on to a British Pound. Alright, so the Brixton Pound is actually fully backed by the British Pound. There's nothing that backs the Bitcoin other than your confidence that you can use it in transactions. So you can't exchange a a Bitcoin for anything except goods and services with businesses who will actually accept Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Now, in the UK, or if you go up to Scotland, for example, when I was there, it's a long time ago now, you could get um, pounds issued by Clydesdale Bank and the Bank of Scotland. Bank of Scotland? Royal Bank of Scotland. I've got some at home. They're parallel currencies as well because those banks hold one British pound for every one of their own towns, Clydesdale Bank or Royal Bank of Scotland. I don't know whether they issue their own currencies now, but they certainly did when I was living there some years ago. What's a cryptocurrency? Yeah. No, you're right. It's a proper currency. Daniel will know because he got the answer right. Yes. Yes. What's the key to what, what, what cryptos mean? What's that all about? Yeah, puzzle? Yeah, it's basically a code which provides security to transactions. So, a cryptocurrency is one where all of the transactions are electronic, and as those transactions actually pass through cyberspace, they're encrypted. Right? That makes it secure, it also makes it for all practical purposes, untraceable. And that's why some people like to use a cryptocurrency like the Bitcoin because the government can't figure out what they're doing with their resources. So would people use Bitcoin to do like illegal activities and things like that? That's one reason why governments don't like cryptocurrencies because criminals can use them or people either engaging in black market transactions or people who want to avoid government scrutiny of their transactions in order to avoid tax, yes. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Don't forget that in Australia, transactions are subject to GST. That's a ruling by the tax office because it's now up to them to actually go and trace the transactions. What about commodity money? What's commodity money? Who's, who's no, I don't think anyone had that answer. No. Oh, you did. What's commodity money, Michelle? It was a guess, wasn't? Oh, that's a terrible thing to confess. eh? <laughs> my goodness, I should have brought my gun with me. <laughs> a twenty-five percent chance of getting it right. <laughs> yeah, look, um, commodity money is simply money that is backed by a commodity of value such as gold or silver. So I'm not really aware of any commodity be one money schemes. Pardon? Would that be one the um, it can be because com- if if, if you have a commodity money, the supply of that money is dependent upon the supply of the commodity. So in the case of a a currency that is backed by gold, the quantity of money is determined by the amount of gold that you dug up out of the ground. That's right. That's what we call fiat money. The kind of money we have today, which is simply declared legal tender by the government, that's called fiat money. For example, that $50 note I showed you a little earlier. I can't exchange that for anything other than another $50 note if I go to a bank or if I go to the Reserve Bank. They can only give me another $50 note in exchange, whereas if it was commodity-backed, I could actually get a piece of gold or silver for it. The earliest of um, coins were based on commodities, usually a commodity of value and a commodity in limited supply, or one that takes a lot of resources to actually extract from the earth. So that's the principle on which Bitcoin is built. Remember, you've got to actually mine for bitcoins, but you do it in a digital environment. So there's a limit on the total number of bitcoins that can be mined or discovered. It takes a lot of computing power to discover new bitcoin, but you know, if you do discover some new bitcoin. I think last week we saw they were worth about eight hundred and seventy Australian dollars at the moment. So one bitcoin's worth a little bit. All right, let's move on. Is that okay? Now I don't have multiple choice um, questions in the, in the exam. I used to when I had bigger classes because they take a long time to create. Obviously, you can make them pretty quickly. But let me have a look at this. Let's have a look at this one. Remember, we had a table up last week. I've left a few bits out of this one. What I would like you to do is to fill in the blanks. I know, everyone's rushing to do it. Okay, so what we were doing last week, we were comparing, very loosely, capitalist economics with what you might call theological or biblical economics. In capitalist economics, scarcity is often seen as the economic problem. Lord Lionel Robbins actually defined. The economic problem as scarcity. Uh, way back just before World War II, actually, British economist. Now, we, now we talked about scarcity earlier on in the semester, so it's not such a bad thing after all, because scarcity arises because the human imagination always outstrips the capacity of our current resources and technologies to deliver on our imagination. All right, so you know we're given that imagination by God, so. Scarcity is created because we ourselves are creative beings, and then we use our creative, relational, teleological, or purpose directed, and uh, moral um, aspects of our nature in order to make discoveries about how we can manage in that environment of of scarcity. So, in a sense, God created an earth with scarcity for our good. But what's the Biblical principle though? Rather than scarcity in, 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 in Biblical terms, you know, what's God's heart for us? Yeah, plenty. The word we had up was plenitude. Plenitude, which means there's plenty of everything in the Kingdom of God. So if we, if we actually engage that imageness in God in which we're created, that is, if we engage our creative capacities, if we work relationally, if we have purpose in what we do and if we develop as moral agents through practising decision making, then we can actually uh, increase the bounty from all of the resources that God has placed in the earth thereby living in a world where there is plenty to go around, where we're not plagued by scarcity. And I think I noted at that time also that Scarcity is not a curse. Scarcity is actually a blessing through which we get to engage our imageness in God. Poverty though is a curse. And poverty has only two causes according to the Bible as far as I can tell. One is indolence or laziness. God doesn't really care about people who are lazy. They can starve as far as he's concerned. And I can show you the scripture to prove it if you want me to. But the other cause is oppression. See, God hates but He hates indolence and he hates oppression. So I think we're, we're called as Christians to do something about oppression in the world. What about this one? In theological economics, the person is relational and they find fulfilment in relationships with God, with others and with the rest of creation. In, in a capitalist... Uh, um, Approach to economics, a purely capitalist approach, how do we regard the human being? What would be, in a sense, the opposite of being a relational person? Sorry? Or non relational, oh, how good is that? <laughs> yeah, got to give you a mark for that. Kara? Autonomous? Yeah. um, We do use the term autonomous a lot in economics, but as, as opposed to being relational, we are an autonomous or an individual person. So we don't see ourselves as thriving in the context of community, but we thrive in the context of the individual, and the individual seeks to maximise the individual's own best interests. In capitalist Economics important virtues include prudence, fortitude, and justice. Prudence is really important as an underpinning for the profit motive. Uh, fortitude, that you know, that ability to stick to it, particularly important for people who are the entrepreneurs in our economy because they're the ones who take the big risks and establish businesses, and things don't always go right. for them. I was. I'm talking to a group of business people today up at um, North Lake, which is why I'm, you know, done up in my good tie and my good shirt and my good deodorant and all. Right? Because you know, I wanted to impress these people. And uh, I said to them, how many of you have gone broke in a business before and half of them put their hands up? Because you take risks. And sometimes, you know what? You go down the gurgler. Not because you're a bad person, or not because you're a fool, but because something in your external environment made it impossible for you to continue in that line of of business. And I know plenty of people who are now regarded as highly successful, they've been bankrupt at some point in their life because they took entrepreneurial risks that just didn't pay off. So prudence is really important in the context of business. So what what about theological economics? You're allowed to cheat, by the way. You can have a look at the PowerPoint from last week. You've got it there? Read it out. Okay, so prudence was there, justice was there as well, wasn't it? No. no, what was it? Faith, hope and love. Yeah, the greatest of these is love. So again, you see, they are concepts that are work in the context of community. You know, but living our lives out with others. And the capitalist economic, social, economic, and political institutions are designed to do what? Read it out. Social, economic, and political institutions are designed to promote social, economic, and political systems the That's on this side, isn't it? Yes. Right, what was on the other side? I'm sorry. On the capitalist side. Can you see the difference? One's got a much more communitarian um, approach about it than the other. The the purely capitalist um, economic approach is really all about satisfying my needs by maximising my capacity for material welfare. Whereas a theological approach is much broader and implies a context of flourishing in community. Important values: capitalist economics. What are the important values listed there? Freedom from and, global. and what was it? And global OK. Now I talked a little bit about the difference between freedom from and freedom to last week. Freedom from implies that I want to actually be free to maximize my material well-being without any interference from anybody else without me having to consider the needs or interests of other people. So it's a very individualistic thing. On the other hand, see, freedom too is about people having the freedom to flourish. So actually, in order for you to flourish, sometimes I have to lay a few things down in my own life. Do you see that? But if we have this attitude, it's not so much about me being freed from... It's more about me being free to flourish as a human being. Mm-hmm. So a very different mindset, or if you like, worldviews. So what? What are other important values in theological economics? Is that it? No, there's some more, isn't there? Um, are freedom from competition, ability, and, and then. Okay. So there's a much more global outlook here compared to this one. Yep. Again, why, why does local matter? Because that's where we experience community, right? See, I, I, I love going to our local farmer's markets. Like, it probably costs me a bit more to buy stuff there. And I'm, I have the privilege of being able to afford to pay a bit more, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed in that respect. But I love going there because I, I talk to the people who produce the products. So, last week, I bought, you know, organic meat from a guy, that their farms, they farm down around the Byron Bay area um, all their meat, you know, real fresh, it's organic so there are no hormones and all that sort of stuff in it, but you get to have a bit of a yarn to the people who run the business. There's a guy there who sells salads you know, pre-prepared salads he does all his growing up in Toowoomba, now I used to live in Toowoomba so I know where he's farming, have a bit of a yarn to him it's, um, it's really good um, the guy who, who bakes the gluten-free bread. My wife has celiac disease, so she has to have gluten-free bread. Norman is his name. Have a bit of a yarn to him while you're buying the bread. You know, he's got two little girls, and I talk to the little girls every now and then, and it's really cool. The people we get our fruit and veggies from. Lovely couple. Always have a bit of a yarn. You know, they chuck in a bit of free fruit for us too, because we're such good people. There's a guy we buy bananas and eggs from and he's got a young son named James, he became unemployed, I gave him my card and said I'll write you a reference if you need a reference for a job. You know, how cool is all that? That happens because it's all local and I'm not relying on you know imports from far away where we can't really build any kind of relationship. Now I'm not saying that's how everybody should operate. I'm saying that, that's my expression of the local as opposed to the global. I'm I, mean, I drive a car that was made in South Korea, so i do the global stuff as well. Um, there's nobody in my backyard who's you know, building cars, so to speak. So um, this is not about, I guess, some kind of esoteric life where you want to separate yourself from what normal people do. But I'm just saying where, where you are able, and that's the whole point about a Christian approach, Wherever you are able, you know, focus on the local because that's where you do life in community. Is that okay? Excellent. Here we go. I've got two questions here. These relate to the share economy. So we're both reviewing last week. And these are examples of the kinds of questions I could ask in the short answer section of the exam paper. Okay? Now I wouldn't have two questions about the share economy like that one after the other. These are just two examples that happen to be based on the, the share economy. Now, when I upload the PowerPoint, I've actually written out answers on the notes page for you. So they're actually there. You can go and have a look at them as, as samples. So here we go. This I, um, I just downloaded this um, image from a, uh, a blog on the web. Share your spare and make money. That's a good little little motto, isn't it? Share your fare. So describe for me the share economy. If, if, if you were sitting down right now in an exam room, you'd probably be down in E1 with a few other people, someone up the front supervising the exam. By then I would have left. I come down usually for the 10 minutes reading time just in case I've done something wrong in my exam and I need to explain myself. That's only happened once in 35 years, by the way. That just means I'm not perfect, only nearly perfect. If you don't. so if I use a word like describe, what am I asking you to do? Do you think like a broad brush picture, isn't it? It's a bit like a rough picture. So I'm not asking you to go into any great depth of analysis. In words, paint me the picture of the share economy. So tell me, what? If, if you had a friend who came to you and said, What's, what's the share economy all about? What, what would you say to them? Daniel? Well, I know a, a restaurant. A restaurant? A restaurant. And she's opened up her kitchen. Yeah. For other local people around the place they have got extra fruit beans that they in They yeah. come into the restaurant and they can give it to her. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Well, it is in a way because that's a a particular kind of share economy. That's that's a barter economy where instead of money changing hands, she's taking the the fruits and vegetables or whatever and then she's offering them a free meal in exchange. That is a kind of share economy, yes. That is one example. Pardon? Uber. Uber? Yes, how does Uber work? What's that all about? Exactly. Right? Right, you've got a car. You don't need to use that car for your own purposes all the time. So one, you've got a car. Two, you've got some time that you don't need. So you've got a spare car and spare time. So you hire out both your car and your time on Uber. What's happening there is I've got spare capacity, I've got an asset that I'm not using 100% of the time, I've got my own time and I'm not using that up 100% of the time, so I can offer out my car and my time as a service to somebody else, in this case for payment. Yep. More, more descriptions? Fridge space. Fridge space. Fridge space? Yeah, did I mention that last week? It's true. Right, in, in principle, if you had some spare space in your fridge, you could rent it out to somebody. Now they'd have to trust that if you put you know, chocolate in there, that you wouldn't eat half their chocolate. So you're you still going to have a very high level of trust. Yes, spare room. <laughs> yeah, room. That Airbnb is by far the biggest um, in that in that um, uh, line of business. So, yes, you could rent out a spare room, either just overnight on an overnight basis, or you might do it uh, longer term. What else? In Europe, it's common to do it with things like bicycles and motor mowers and so on. Not so common here in Australia, mainly because our population is a lot more dispersed compared with some um, European countries. So, the essence of the share economy is that some people have either assets or time that they're not using fully that they are able to rent out to people who need to use that asset or who could use your time. And the benefit is that we actually use the, um, the capital base, the physical capital base and resources like labour more efficiently. And ultimately that's good for the economy because the more efficiently we use our resources the more we can get by way off the size of that economic picture overall the more our GDP can be. Do you see that? Pretty good idea don't you reckon? So one of the things I mentioned that's really important in the share economy is we've actually got to trust each other. So let's say um, Cara advertised she had a room for rent, I took it out. She'd have to actually trust one that I'm going to pay on time, each week. Let's say I was renting that for a period of two months or something. She'd have to trust that I'd be able to pay and that I would pay. And she'd have to trust that I wouldn't uh, trash the room, yeah, or steal the bed, or, or whatever. yeah. So always in business transactions, trust is vital. You can't legislate for trust and integrity. It's a fundamental assumption that underlies capitalist economies, and in fact virtually any economy at all. So why is the internet important for the share economy? What, what, what is it about the internet that has actually made it possible for the share economy to grow as much as it has in recent times? A channel for communication, absolutely true. I'm um, Daniel mentioned someone having a restaurant available where people could bring their surplus for fruit and veggies. I could probably do if they had a chicken they wanted to kill and all sorts of things. And then that's sold and they get free meals in return. That's an example of a barter economy. Now for that to work, someone's got to have a surplus somewhere. Someone's got to have a need somewhere. The two have got to be able to identify each other and come together. Do you see that? Now the problem in the absence of the internet is how do these people communicate a surplus and a demand? Or if you like a supply and a demand? The beauty of the internet is it makes it possible for people to come together. Okay? It makes it possible for people efficiently to identify those who have got supply and those who have the demand. What's the other great benefit of the internet? And this is in relation to trust. What's the other great benefit of the internet? Anyone who's transacted on eBay will probably know. Uh-huh. Yes. So in, on eBay, for example, sellers can be rated, can't they? Now if a seller gets a bad rating, are you going to buy from them? Probably not. The same thing can happen on the um, software that's used to drive the share economy. So let's say you're using um, a software, an app on your phone. Well, Uber, Uber, for example, allows you to rate the driver. So if a driver gets a bunch of poor ratings, probably that driver's not going to get much business. They get good ratings. Guess what? People are going to demand that particular driver more frequently. And so the same thing would apply if you're using some kind of um, app or software somewhere to um, bring together people who've got a room or a house to let and people who actually want to rent a room or a house. So both sides of that party can actually rate each other. How good's the landlord? How good's the renter? A renter who gets a low rating is going to find it extremely hard to rent in the future. Do you see that? So... The internet actually allows us to overcome two problems. The first being, it it makes it much easier for people who have got supply and people who have got demand to identify each other and come together, but it also offers a very cheap and effective way of conveying information about the integrity and the degree of trust that you can have in the um, parties to a transaction. That's why the internet is so important. The internet the great advantage of the internet in business is that it brings down costs significantly, very significantly. The costs of actually getting a transaction underway come down significantly, like usually from many dollars to just a few cents. It made a huge difference in business. So that's the kind of thing I would ask you. I'd be looking for a good answer to those short answer questions. All right? Pretty good, eh? Not too bad. I think you get about 18 of those questions in the exam. I just can't remember off the top of my head. Maybe he 20. I can't remember. But um, I have actually got a copy of the most recent exam that I'll hand it out shortly. Righto. Let me move on now to talk about what I call the fail-proof or foolproof proof approach to doing mini case study. And you'll see... Uh, each of my exams is made up of two parts. The first part is short answer questions and those questions are basically asking what you remember. They're not asking you to go to a deeper level of learning and explain or analyse or compare and contrast or anything like that. So basically you can answer part A of the exam if you've simply kept up with the tour so to speak. All right? Now, the second part is more difficult because the second part actually requires you to take what you've learned and then to actually apply it in specific circumstances. And this is usually where students don't do so well. If, if you're going to do poorly in an exam, it will usually be here. This is what really separates the people who have truly and truly understood economics from those who haven't. So, the first thing you want to do is analyse the question. And you need to do this with any, any assessment. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a question in an exam or a major assignment task. Analyse the question. That is, figure out what it is you're supposed to do. Do you know one of the biggest complaints I hear from lecturers who are marking assignments? It's, this student didn't answer the question. Now, I've been on that for 35 years because that's how long I've been lecturing for. Lecturers complaining, they didn't answer the question. Well, you're not going to be able to answer the question if you don't analyse it so that you can figure out what it is the lecturer is actually asking you to do. You see, your default position as students is to dump everything you possibly can remember on the page hoping that the lecturer will give you a mark for something. Yeah? Because you've worked hard, or crammed the night before, one or the other, and you want to demonstrate to the the lecturer that you know a lot of stuff. So you'll have a tendency to dump as much as you possibly can on the page. But guess what? You can't be marked for anything we haven't asked you for. So you're kind of wasting a lot of effort. Alright, there are three things you need to look for when you're analysing the question. A good question will always have some instructive or directive keywords, one or more of them. It will have focus or content keywords and it will have what we call delimiting keywords. When you're looking for instructive keywords, look for a verb, a doing word, because that's all about what you are to do, alright? So the instructive keywords tell you what to do. I've got a list that I'll run through shortly. Now the focus content, or or some of these are called the subject keywords, they tell you what to do it to. Right? So the the instructive keywords tell you what to do, and the focus or content keywords tell you what to do it to. That is, they, they narrow things down to a particular content area, and then there will normally be what we call delimiting keywords they tell you the limits within which you do it to it. That's easy to remember, eh? They tell you the limits within which you do it to it. I kind of like that. That's mine, I have got that up myself, you know. I should um, copyright that, really, shouldn't I? Now, I, I will go through an actual question so I can show you how the, all, this, all, all this works. Now, what I recommend is that when you come to actually do an answer in an exam that you analyse the question. In fact, I used to make my students analyse the question and give them some marks for that in their assignments during term. Maybe I should start doing that again. I used to spend a lot of time on this in my former university. I had six special modules of um, key study skills that I used to present in tutorials. But in my previous university, there was five hours of timetabled class time each each week for each unit. Here we only have three. Some universities only have two these days. But anyway. So, that is so important, analysing the question because if you don't analyse the question you won't really know what it is your lecturer is asking and of course the lecturer is then going to say Emily didn't answer the question. (laughs) Right? Because you always will, won't you Emily? Because you will analyse the questions really carefully. Alright. Oh, can I read that? Um, I knew that that would be pretty hard to read. If you print it out, it's not so bad. But this is a list of instructive keywords. Sometimes it'll be a straight question with a question mark. that might say something like, what are the Ten Commandments? We just write them out. One to, one to ten, because that's all you're being asked to do. You'll often have an instructive keyword such as analyse. That's a favourite one at university. Well, that requires you to break down the topic into its parts, explain the nature or relative importance of the components, definitions or concepts and explain how they are interrelated and why certain outcomes occurred. That's a pretty deep Level, all right? you, you will be required to go to a fairly deep level of learning when the keyword word is analysed. These are in alphabetical order, by the way. Another one you'll get quite a bit around here is compare and or contrast. So if you're asked to compare two things, you're looking for similarities between ideas or concepts or historical events or models. And if you're asked to contrast... Well, you're looking for the differences, aren't you? And typically, the question will ask you to do both, to compare and contrast. Alright? Another one you'll find is frequently used, is critically analysed. Well, that requires analysis, but in addition to that, you need to address the strengths and the weaknesses or the pros and cons of the definitions and content or of the relationships. And actually, there's not that much difference between analysing and critically analyse. It's just that when you're asked to critically analyse a topic, the expectation is that you'll go to an even deeper level of learning. All right? You'll often find a word like define, set down the precise meaning and establish the boundaries of a topic or of a concept or a model. Now, if it says define, that's all you should do. Right? Don't go on and discuss it or analyse it. If you're asked to define something, just give that definition. Discuss is another common one. Consider a topic from various points of view to reveal, consider and represent aspects of the issue in general terms. So, thank you, Daniel. Um, just send us an email or give us a, a call. Or, Yeah, good on you, mate. Um, and again, disgust doesn't require you to go to a very deep level of of learning. Evaluate is one, I don't tend to use evaluate, not, not in first year, I will probably use that in third year. When you're asked to evaluate something, that's like analysing something but actually coming to a conclusion that you justify by reference to your previous argument. Now that requires you to go to a very deep level of learning. Generally I avoid questions like that in a first year unit. Um, you'll find explain is used quite a lot. To explain means to make plain or clear, to advise the meaning, to interpret. So if a question said something like, explain the concept of the share economy, that would require something like what we went through a little earlier in relation to that question, you know, describe the share economy, but it just requires you to go a little bit deeper than merely description. Uh, Another word we use quite a bit is outline. That requires you to briefly identify and present systematically or, you know, in a logical order, the most important aspects or elements of a topic. Now as it turns out the question that we're going to analyse requires you to prepare an outline for a, for a presentation. So you'll get a bit of an idea of what an outline looks like. Um, sometimes I will use the term summarise which is to give a concise account of omitting the details and examples so it's a very truncated um, answer required. Alright. So, I do apologise for the small print, but I wanted to try and get all that on the one slide. There's the URL. You can find it at the University of Canberra, actually. Um, But if you print that out, you'll be able to read all the, the fonts there. Now, what I will do is, when I look at your answers, I'll have that in front of me. Let me just give you a warning. Different lecturers use different words and they've got a different meaning in mind sometimes. It shouldn't be the case, but it is. I actually think it's wise of you to see if your lecturer will give you a list like this before you do exams. Okay, so how do you actually answer a question? How do you actually answer a question? What I reckon is, first thing is, Analyse the question. so highlight the keywords. Then actually write an answer plan, including any diagrams you're going to use. Number the diagrams, because then instead of reproducing them, you can just refer back to them by number when you actually come to write your answer. Your plan, it can be dot points, a mind map, or examples, whatever works best for you. And once you've done that, start writing your answer. So I think you've got about, um, you do three mini case studies for me and I suggest that you allow uh, 30 minutes each of those questions, 90 minutes for the three questions in total. I would suggest you probably should spend up to about 10 minutes of the 30 minutes in that preliminary work, analysing the question, doing a quick plan of the assignment, including any diagrams that um, you're planning to use. Alright? Then start writing your answers. So, what I would expect to find on a a page, you get a little answer booklet to write your answers in. (coughs) Right, so there's the middle page, you've got a couple of staples in there. So if it's question 20 that you're going to answer, so the first thing you might do is right here, Analyze. Note the three types of keywords. Then you might say Plan. Now if you're you're oriented towards the written word like I am, you might do a bunch of dot points. If you're good at mind maps, some people really like mind maps if you're quite visually oriented, you might have, you know, all of these little things in here, which are your ideas, and you just join them up. I'm not good at mind maps. Some people actually learn how to do mind maps, and there's software that you can use for mind maps. My son-in-law David, um, preaches at our church sometimes. He's got mind mapping software. So when he does his, his, um, what well, we don't call them sermons, we call them discussion points, but, when he does a discussion point, he's got a, a mind map of it on his iPad. And so he doesn't have notes written out like I do. He's got a mind map. That works for him because of the way in which he is an engineer. That's the way in which he kind of visualises information. That's all good. Some people who are more... Um, some, people, some experts call this um, haptic or um, kinesthetic approach to learning, you might be better off actually listing some examples that you can use. And then you might want to draw your diagrams. So you might say, well, here we go, here's one. Label it all. And then, that's 10 minutes, guess what? You can't forget anything now, it's all there. You're confident that you're going to actually write an answer that the lecturer has asked you to answer. And you can start writing. You don't have to draw up any diagrams anymore. Go on to the next page and write on the next page because you've got them all there. You might have another diagram in here somewhere which you might call figure 2. This thing is worn out. Now the beauty of it is this. Let's say you're running out of time. You get to that third answer, and you haven't got 30 minutes left, you've only got 15 minutes. I'll pass you based on this. because all I'm doing when I'm marking the exam, I'm just looking for evidence that you've met the learning outcomes of the unit to one degree or another. And if you just run out of time and you don't actually get the time to write out, you know, an answer in longhand, I can tell by looking at this whether you know what you're talking about, can't I? So you'll automatically get seven or eight marks out of 20 just for that. And I've passed people in the past just because of it. Now some lecturers refuse to mark that stuff, right? I don't. I'm a bit different to some people. So don't try this technique in other classes unless you know for sure that your lecturer will accept this. Some will say we won't mark any of that, we only start marking from here, I mark the whole lot. You see my job is to get you past not to fail you. You should only fail if you haven't done the work and in my experience generally speaking that's what happens. The people who fail generally speaking haven't really put in a lot of effort, haven't really engaged as active learners during the semester. But Those who have, every now and then you might find well I'm I'm just running out of time, but that's okay because I've got a pretty good idea whether or not you know anything based on that plan that you've done. You've got your diagrams, you've got your dot points or your mind map or whatever and I can guarantee you'll get 7 or 8 marks out of 20 just for doing that and I have passed some students previously on the basis of that. See I'm not looking for perfect English or anything like that. This is an exam you're stressed. You're time-limited. Not everybody can write with the same speed, etc., etc. Sometimes people's mind goes a bit blank, etc. I'm just looking for evidence, not for perfection. Emily? Um, are you allowed to take in any notes? No, no, no. You're allowed to take in one A4 page double-sided with your own notes and you can make the font as small as you like. You can either handwrite or print it out. So that's we used to have open books. I stopped it because students were pressuring lecturers who didn't want to do it to have open books said, no, I won't tolerate that. So we've got a blanket rule right across the school that says you can take into the exam an A4 piece of paper, double-sided, either handwritten or typed. I've seen some, you know, the font is about 6.5. Young eyes, I suppose, can read it. (laughs) I can't. And um, some students are really quite ingenious in terms of how they actually, you know, fit stuff in. But you, whatever you can fit in on that A4 page, you can. There are one or two units that are open book. Um, I think the law units are. Not, they're not. They don't have to be. The, the company law unit is. And there might be an accounting couple of in the county that are. But the standard ruling is one A4 sheet of paper With your own notes on it, and that can be handwritten, as I said, or typed. I think in some classes, I think in one of Wendy, in one of her accounting classes, she provides a formula sheet with the exam. That's up to the lecturer concerned. But ask, ask about those kinds of things because they're all important, and um, they should be on the front page of the sample examination paper, which you you should be able to find (coughs) on your Moodle page. So, are you with me so far? Why don't we actually do an example? Now, you might not be able to read my handwriting, but I did it in handwriting because this is probably what you're going to throw up to me when I have to mark it. So, here's, this is the exam that I wrote for students who did this unit in uh, semester three of 2015. Look at that, I have exactly the right number. How good is that? Mm. Alright. So you'll see that just on that front page, materials, equipment permitted. One, writing instruments. Two, a double-sided A4 page of typed or handwritten notes. Some examples, they can bring in a uh, non-programmable handheld calculator. So that's the case in Wendy's exam, I think but there really aren't any calculations here that you would need a calculator for. Instructions, the exam's made up of two parts. 18 short answer questions, each worth a maximum of five marks. Part B, three mini case study questions, maximum of 30 marks each. And part A and part B, I've suggested allocate 90 minutes to each part. We're gonna have a look at question 19. So question 19 starts on page 5. Now I'm going to give you a minute or two to read it. So read through question 19. Now this is based on something real of course. In November last year there were terrorist attacks in Paris. So this question is actually based on what had just happened at the time that I wrote. What do you think about that? Is that a good question or what? Mm-hmm. Hey? <laughs> right, eh? See, economics matters out there in the world in which people live. It's not just something we do in the classroom. So, just before we actually get into using this um, fail-proof approach, can someone just summarise for me the main points? What are the main points of that story? Yeah, consumer spending. So, and, and what's the 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 cause the cause behind changes in consumer spending? According to that article, yeah, and 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 the terrorist attacks have done what? Okay, so there was immediate impact on tourism, yep, and there was an impact on consumer confidence. Okay, now that is really important. That's really important. The other thing is, what does it say about how big the tourism industry is in France? 7.4% of GDP. So if something goes badly wrong in tourism, that sector is big enough to affect the whole economy. Okay? So if if tourism was only half a percent of GDP, then it wouldn't really matter. 7.4% you know, if tourism declines by, say, um, 30%, that would reduce um, GDP by maybe 2.5% or so, which everybody would notice. That's a huge impact. All right? So, in this case, the terrorism attack in November last year was expected to have a macroeconomic impact. So, you know, this is about macroeconomics. All right. Let's move on and have a bit of a look at analysing the question. Here we go. What are you required to do? So at the bottom of all of that text, this is what you're asked to do. You have been invited to present the keynote address at a conference on the macroeconomic impact of terrorism. Using the above extract, prepare notes for your presentation. Alright. So we're looking for some instructive keywords. Find a verb. You've got to find a verb. There's one. All right. So your actual task is to prepare notes. That's what I'm looking for. I want to see some notes that you could use if you had been asked to do this presentation. So I'm not actually asking you to write a beautiful prosaic essay, am I? Just notes. they could be dot points or dashes. Yep, that's what I'm looking for. Now, where's the focus? Where's the focus? What, what kind of content am I looking for? What kind of content am I looking for, do you think? Yeah, righto. That's what I'm looking for. Macroeconomic impact. Not looking for anything microeconomic. So, I don't want you to tell me all you know about microeconomics. I want you to tell me about something that's going on at the level of the macroeconomy as a result of terrorism. What about the delimiting? Keyword? Terrorism. So I am not interested in what you know about fiscal policy or monetary policy or what determines foreign exchange rates or any of that stuff. Like if you had two hours to write it, you could get into some of those issues. But I'm looking for the context of terrorism and you're given that context in, in the question. Do you see that? Okay. (coughs) <coughs> that's not actually the end even though the slide says that what I would like you to do now is to turn over and you'll see some scribble on the last two pages that's my beautiful scribble because this is what I would do if I were you and I'd get nearly four marks for it what? put what in? That's what I would do but if you don't you're not necessarily going to be shot for it I would do, so you need because that demonstrates that you know what you're being asked. Don't forget this is my fail proof if you don't want to follow my advice that's your outlook right you don't have to do that what you have to do is answer the question this will help you answer the question okay so if you have a look at this, this is the kind of stuff I get from students. Well, actually, usually they don't write this much, but, right, okay, so that's, I haven't bothered typing it up and doing fancy diagrams, because this is a bit more authentic. And I did it in about the amount of time you would have to do uh, your answer. So, your instructive keywords, prepare notes, 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 not a very long and detailed essay, notes. Quibbly dot points or dashes or even a mind map would be enough. Okay? So you've identified the instructive keywords, prepare notes. Now you could do that by highlighting those things on the question paper if you wanted to because it doesn't matter that much. The focus keywords, macroeconomic impact. So that's really only short-term stuff, not really worried about going into detail about what might happen in the longer term. And the delimiting keywords, terrorism. So let's focus on terrorism, not other things that might affect the macroeconomy, like a change in foreign income, or a change in the exchange rate, or the introduction of the goods and services tax. You might want to tell me all about that because you've done some study in that area, but I'm not asking you for it, so if you write about it, I can't give you any marks. Do you see that? Alright, so... Macroeconomic impact. Here's my rough notes. Alright? The first dash says, tourism is a large industry. All right? We saw from that background information that tourism comprises 7.4% of the French economy. So that's big enough for tourism to have an impact on the macroeconomy. So a downturn in tourism would affect GDP. Right? As long as nothing else changes. How does that happen? A downturn, sorry, the other impact, a downturn in consumer confidence, less spending. Right? What's the outcome? Aggregate demand, AD, shifts less, unless there are other factors at play. So this is the ceteris paribus assumption. Remember? All good economists assume ceteris paribus. Nothing else changes. So if the only things that have changed in France as a result of the terrorist attacks are that there's less tourism and consumer confidence has declined, then we would expect that the aggregate demand curve would shift to the left. Why is that? Because at every price level there's now less demand. How do I know that? Well, we'll come to that in a minute. Now, I'm going to draw up a figure. Notice I'm not explaining how the figure works, I'm just drawing up this picture. We know we're talking about the macro economy, so we're talking about aggregate demand and aggregate supply. When we were dealing with aggregate demand and aggregate supply, we saw a model that had this perpendicular long run aggregate supply line that occurred at the full employment level of output or potential GDP. I don't really care how you label it. So there'll be an aggregate demand curve that intersects our long-run aggregate supply curve and there'll be a short-run aggregate supply per- curve that goes through the same point. That's equilibrium, all right? And always in economics, we start off by assuming equilibrium. Something happens. What's happened? Terrorist attack. Less uh, tourism. Tourism being an export causes the aggregate demand curve to shift to the left. Downturning consumer confidence. That causes people to spend less, save more. That also causes aggregate demand to shift to the left. So I've labelled that leftward shift effective terrorism. That should be an E, not an A, by the way. And I don't care if you don't spell properly in an exam. It's just not a spelling test. And I should have closed the parenthesis there too, um, up above there. But again, I don't care. In an exam, I don't care. I'm just looking for evidence. I'm not looking for perfection, so just remember that, alright? I'm looking for evidence, I'm not looking for perfection. Now, I have noted here that if you wanted to offset that shift in aggregate demand, you could do so, do so, do so, do so by using fiscal policy. So you could increase government purchases. Right up. So you know what? That's my whole plan. Now, if you ran out of time, I could look at that and say, oh, wow, Michelle really knows what she's on about here. That's the kind of diagram I'd be looking for. That's the kind of effect I'd be looking for. She'd either get nearly passed or I'd probably give her a pass mark or something like that. That's a pretty good deal, eh? Don't you think? That's not a bad deal. So, here's my answer though. Notes for presentation. Remember, notes, 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 notes. I've chosen dot points. So here's my got point answer. Terrorist attack in France immediately affected the number of tourists. Remember, I'm writing notes for my presentation. Right? I'm not writing a storybook, I'm not writing a thesis, I'm writing notes because I was asked to prepare notes for my presentation. Tourism is an export. Right? Tourism is an export. Reduction in exports reduces aggregate demand. Why is that? Because net exports is a component on the expenditures side of GDP. Remember GDP, C plus I plus G plus X minus M. Consumption plus investment plus government purchases plus net exports equals gross domestic product when measured on the expenditure side of the economy. Terrorism had an effect on consumer confidence. A decline in confidence usually causes a reduction in consumer spending. Reduction in consumer spending reduces aggregate demand. Household consumption is a component on the expenditure side of GDP. Ceteris paribus, that is, nothing else changing, other things being equal, the aggregate demand curve will shift leftwards, since at any given price there will now be less Expenditure. There are fewer tourists coming in, so they're spending less. Confidence is down, consumer confidence is down, so consumers are spending less, whatever the price level happens to be. There will be a lower general level of prices. You see that's illustrated in the diagram. There will be a lower general level of prices, less real GDP, so real GDP will decline, and a lower, lower level of employment. See figure one. I've shown it there. We start out in equilibrium, aggregate demand shifts to the left, price level falls, income level falls, when the income level falls so too is the level of employment, which also implies, of course, that the rate of unemployment will increase, and we don't like that. Next dot point, these effects can be offset by fiscal policy, additional government purchases, will shift the aggregate demand curve to the right, restoring the full employment equilibrium. Final point, important to note that government purchases should be reduced once the effects on tourism and consumer confidence have declined because as tourism comes back to its normal level of activity and as consumer confidence rises back to a more normal level, net exports will increase. Consumer spending will increase and so the yeah, aggregate demand curve will have a tendency to shift rightwards anyway. So what you need to do with fiscal policy, increase government purchases and then decrease government purchases as demand tends to increase when things come right again, which they probably will do after a year or so, unless there are further terrorist attacks. Do you see that? I'd give you a mark of about 90% for that. A good high distinction level. It's not that hard, eh? Is it? This is the trick. Read the question. Right? What's the story here? What's the story here? That question was about macroeconomics. Tourism contributes to net exports, consumer confidence is about consumer spending. If you think back when we were looking at aggregate demand, what affects aggregate demand? All of those components of aggregate expenditure, of GDP, do. If net exports fall, aggregate demand shifts to the left. If consumer confidence falls because they spend less on their own purchases and save more instead, aggregate demand curve shifts to the left. Do you see? Not that hard, eh? (laughs) Yeah, it's not that hard. It's not actually that hard. But it requires you to read the story and work out where the story fits in terms of the whole semester. So, I could have asked a question that said, assume that a terrorist attack in Australia causes tourism expenditure to fall by 20%, and consumer confidence before you know, using an appropriate model to explain it. That's all pretty boring, eh? But I'm using a real example out of the world in which we live. <coughs> oh, pardon me. Oh, that won't be too good for the people who are listening to the recording of this, will it? <laughs> That'll wake them up anyway, won't it? Um, so, you know, I could ask the questions in a different way, but see what I'm getting at is can you take a situation that has actually occurred in the world or or could potentially occur in the world and can you put it into that economic way of thinking? That's the important thing you see. Remember, go right back to our first week. What's this about? This is about using a particular approach to thinking about what's going on in the world. That's what it's about fundamentally. It's not so much about how fancy your diagram is, it's about How you process a situation and figure out which is the right model to use to explain what's going on, Charlotte. I think, Pardon? Sure, you can have the aircon if I can find the. um, If I can find the remote, we go. I should have put it on when I came in here because I knew it was going to create a lot of hot air. That's long, yes, that's better, okay. now, I don't always have questions that are that long you know, with that much information in them. Sometimes they're quite a bit shorter than that, but you'll have a look if you have a look there, you'll see that there are other questions. Here's another one I'll put in, especially for the girls. Question 20. This is from an article published in an Australian business magazine. Question 20. Global beauty and cosmetics retail Sephora has set its sights on sneering at least 10% of the $4 billion Australian market by offering lower prices, new brands and a self-service format to attract younger women and men into its store. So it's a foreign business, they're going to launch in Australia, open up some um, stores. They go on to say they've achieved ten percent of the of market share in Singapore and Malaysia in three years. It's going to be more difficult to do that in Australia because there are well established players and on on we go, they're plans to open standalone stores and so on. What are you required to do? You're an economist employed by a company that provides advice to large department stores like David Jones and Meyer. Who knows that if you walk into the ground floor of a David Jones or Meyer store anywhere in the country, what are you going to see? Yeah, all that cosmetic stuff, right? Us blokes, if you want to go up to men's room, we've always got to walk through. All the makeup stuff, you know, and see all the ladies in black doing up pretty faces and stuff like that. And they've even got a lot of boy perfumes and stuff in there these days, but I don't really stop for that. Anyway, so your manager has asked you to write a report on how Sephora stores might affect profit from sales of beauty and cosmetic products. Again, prepare a proposed outline for your report. I'm not actually asking you to write a report, which might, in the real world, well run to maybe 30 pages. But first of all, tell me, is this microeconomics or macroeconomics? Yes, micro. Okay. Can you think of anything we talked about in microeconomics that you might be able to use in this answer here? Uh, Well, supply and demand, this is about entry of a new business, isn't it? Entry of a new firm into the market. Okay. So if you're advising the established, big established department stores like Myra and David Jones, what are you going to talk to them about? Hey? What sort of policies? Um, In Tell me more. Don't you don't know? Eh? Of course you do. No, you, of course you know more. You just don't think you do. Yeah. Didn't we talk about the entry and exit of firms? So why, why would a new business look at Australia and think, well, we, we should actually set up business there? Yeah, but gotta be a bit more specific than just because of the market. Why? Why might Sephora decide, you know what? There's room for us in the Australian market. What would on the basis of that economic model we discussed in class about entry and exit of firms, what actually causes new firms to enter into a market? No. Lack of competition is more like it's profit. Okay. So Sephora has looked at Australia they've had a look at the businesses that are in the market and said, you know what? They're making above normal profits. So that means we can enter the market and grab some of the market share and we can still cover all of our costs, including our opportunity costs. And what would be the outcome of that for for us consumers? When you get entry of new firms into a market because above normal profits are being made, What happens to the price? It goes down. What happens to the quantity? There's your answer, right? So the the key here is where do I, what do I pluck out of, you know, the 13 weeks of economics I did with Rod that I can use to answer the question? This is actually about a new firm entering a market, and we spent about half a class on that, or maybe not that, but we would have spent about an hour on that. If you go back through your notes, when you have a look at the topic on market structures, we did pure competition. In there, we talked about what happens when a profit emerges in the market. That attracts new entrants. When they come in, there's more supply overall. That has a tendency to drive the price down to increase the quantity sold in the market. Now, they also note in here that it's not just about taking market share from the existing businesses. It's about growing the market at the same time and that, of course, is what happens when the quantity increases. Right? So when the price comes down, David Jones and Meyer and so on, their their profit shrinks a bit so they might get less revenue but actually the size of the market overall will tend to increase. Do you see that? Easy. Easy peasy. Of course it's easy. See, the key is this. Know your stuff. Read the story, think I'm thinking like an economist I'm thinking like an economist what was it that we did over those 13 fabulous weeks that I can use in this story boom you're done and life's question write out your plan then do your answer, it can't go wrong and look even if you don't know much you're not going to fail, right because I can't really, I can't fail you if, if you, you know, if you follow that example. How could I fail you? Because you've done exactly as I've asked. Do you see that? And look, even if you get it a bit wrong, that doesn't mean you're going to fail. Because I oh know you're doing it under exam conditions. You don't see the questions before you get in there. I hope you don't, do hey? <laughs> <laughs> I do all sorts of things, like passwords, protecting the files and all kinds of things. You want to chuck them around the moderate and so. Um, so the key is, you know, read the story and then have a little think, well, what can I draw from the classes that I can use here? Now, you know what? You're sitting here today thinking, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. You know why? Because you haven't read those notes probably for the last six and a half weeks. But you've got all next week to go through your notes so you'll be familiar with the content and I guarantee that will make it much, much easier. What about the last question, eh? That's a good one. It's about the School of Business at CHC launching a new postgraduate course, a bit of advertising in there. Our MBA is one among around 65 available in Australia, so there's a lot. Ours is one of the cheaper ones. So, you know, I've noted there that we're, we're sort of a bit lower than the University of New England, the University of Southern Queensland, Shipley Business School at Collins University. There's another one. The Australian Institute of Business is, is actually the cheaper one. It's... it's um. The cheapest MBA that I'm aware of on the market. So the School of Business claims that the MBA it offers is unique, and this is reflected in the rationale statement for the course. And this is true. This comes out of our documentation, by the way. Okay. The Master of Business at CAC is intended to provide graduates with specialised theoretical knowledge and skills. Blah 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 blah. Graduates may be employed in the private sector, etc. etc. What are you required to do? You've chosen the School of Business at CHC as the organisation in which to complete your final year uh, internship project. You're currently planning the oral presentations, and this is real by the way, you do one of these at the end of your degree, in which you have chosen to focus on factors affecting student demand for the school's MBA, prepare notes for your presentation. So this is microeconomics, alike right, because it's demand for a specific product, and you're only asked to look at the demand curve. So what kind of factors are going to influence demand? What's the first one we look at? You might, but I wouldn't. Oh, yeah, that's the the method, right? But what's the first factor you'd look at? Yeah, price, alright? Where does CHC sit, competitively speaking, in terms of price? We're pretty cheap, eh? We should double the fees, I reckon. Yeah. Then so we make people. Actually, sometimes if you've got the lowest price, sometimes the market actually perceives that as a signal of a low quality, particularly in education. So, it it could actually be that the low price is a negative in the market because people will believe will you get what you pay for, and you compare our twenty thousand dollar, it's a bit more, it's about twenty four thousand dollar MBA with a. MBA, you might think, gee whiz, you know, there's going to be a big difference in quality. So that's something to keep in mind. But what other kinds of things would influence demand? Well, the structure. I haven't really talked much about the structure here, but what about the fact that it's a Christian MBA? Wouldn't that make a difference? So do you think there might be some people out there who would come here specifically because that's what they, you said, no? Oh, I, I reckon atheists wouldn't. Why would they? What would an atheist, so, but I'm like, oh, who cares? Like, um I shouldn't say that, but it's not, we're not actually targeting atheists, are we? Because no. we're up front that it's all about Christian world. We're doing business from a biblical perspective. So, no, but who might want to enroll? Christians, yeah. Christians in business or who are quantum party starting a business who really want to know, how do I do this in a way which is consistent with a Christ-centered Bible-based worldview? Yeah? Okay? There could be quite a few of them out there. Like 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 babies. I don't know. I mean, in the whole of Australia there might be a couple of thousand. There wouldn't be hundreds of thousands in... Um, like when I used to be at USQ, our, our MBA enrolment, the maximum we ever had was about 1,200 students. I wouldn't expect that here. I don't think there will be 1,200 Christians in business around Australia who all at the same time want to do an MBA. My own predictions are we'll probably get 12 to 15 new students every year. That's, that's what I think. And I'll be happy with that. I'd love to have 100. That'd be super. Like realistically, I think it's probably more like twelve to fifteen inches. but what other kinds of things might influence demand what's in the what's in the story here? What about some people need this level of qualification in order to get promotions to more senior positions yeah so for example, someone who wants to become a principal of a school they will sometimes be will be recommended to them that they go off and I do a master's degree in leadership or business administration or um, something like that, right? So we, we actually had one student who enrolled specifically because she was in Western Australia. She got one because it was all done externally, so she didn't have to drive to Brisbane to go to classes because she was in Western Australia. And she'd also been told, look, if you want to be promoted to principal, you need a master's degree, go and do uh, Master of Education or Leadership or Administration or Master of Business Administration or something like that. So she chose to do a Master of Business Administration. So that's going to affect demand for the degree. Pardon? Just just say that. Well, it's given to you here. See, if if you decide, yep, this is microeconomics and what we're focusing on is demand, two things affect demand, right? Price will cause you to move up or down the demand curve. A change in any other relevant factor will cause the demand curve to shift. So count it in those terms. Sure. And, and explain it in a little bit of detail. So how does the price affect it? All right? If you doubled the price, would that probably keep some students out? Why is that? Because a lot of people who would enrol in a degree like this, for example, they're working in churches or not-for-profit organisations, and they're earning fairly low salaries. So they're not going to be able to pay $60,000 for an MBA, but they might be able to pay a bit over 20000 with, you know, with fee help and so on. Um, the fact that the whole course is based on Christian worldview, that would be attractive to some people, but it wouldn't be attractive to other people. right? So what that would mean is that overall it's probably a small market we're not going to have the same number of students as, say, the University of Queensland or somewhere like that. So do you see what, what I'm driving at here? These are all actually examples from outside the door, so to speak. And what I'm trying to get you students to do is to look at what's going on out there and think about it as economists would think about it. At least until you finish your exam. After that, well, who knows? Okay. So you all good? You happy? Yes. You don't have to, as long as you can get the information across. But I think if you're really aiming to get a good grade, like an HD level of mark for that question, stick in a diagram. So for that one on the MBA, you could put in a supply and demand diagram and say, well, if uh, you know the low price will, will, will increase demand because we shift down along the demand curve, the fact that it's specifically focused on that Christian emphasis that will attract some students but not others, um, it can be helpful to have a diagram. If you don't have a diagram, it's not the end of the world. I don't fail people because they haven't got... If it's the story you tell which is the important thing. Often a diagram can help you tell the story. Yes. Any other questions? You all good? Alright, now, I apologise profusely that you haven't got your marked assignments back. We have a policy at CAC that says normally you will get them back within three weeks of the due date. I'm grossly negligent because I haven't done that. My excuse is I'm just so busy, but that is not a good excuse. Right? It's a reason but it's not actually an excuse at all. Um, I will over the next few days get the marked. I'll make sure you've got plenty of feedback and of course if you want to contact me with any questions you're very welcome to do that. All right, and I'm happy to sit with individuals if um, you would like me to do that between now and um, the day of the exam. Well, I can tell you now that students who engage, who turn up to class, they don't fail. If you're engaging with the material you won't fail. So don't anticipate that you're going to fail. If you haven't put in around about that 150 hours in total work for the unit, you probably will struggle. So you need to have been putting in somewhere between 6 and 10 hours a week on average. If you have been doing that, that's including coming to class. So if you did three hours in class roughly every week and another three or four hours private study outside class, you'd probably do okay. All right? So I'm not expecting people to go, I don't, I don't set out to fail people, that's not my job. The only people who fail really should be the people who don't actually engage with the learning resources and learn how to think like an economist. The other thing, of course, is if you fail one, two or even all three of those many case studies, it doesn't mean you're going to fail the unit overall because we base your grade for the unit on the mark that you get when we add everything up. So you've got the class test, you've got the uh, written assignment on the mission or business conference or alternative B, and then you've got the final exam. Okay? And so we don't have a requirement that you've got to pass everything. We do have a requirement, however, that you've got to do a reasonable attempt, and we define a reasonable attempt if at you mark a 40% or more for each individual item, but that's just a guideline. So if you've failed something by a bit, that doesn't mean you're going to fail the course uh, the unit overall alright is that okay? I've really enjoyed